0: Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Today on The Tanya Acker Show, we're going to talk about money, and with me to talk about money is Chloe McKenzie. She is a financial literacy expert. She is the founder and CEO of Black Fem Inc. She's a scholar at the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty's Initiative on Gender Justice and Opportunity, and she is here to talk to us about money and all kinds of things attendant to it. Welcome, Chloe. Welcome to the Tanya Agra Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. It's an important topic. It's an important time to be having this conversation because you focus on wealth inequality, which right now is as pronounced for everybody as it's ever been. You point out that it is specifically pronounced for Black women and Latin women in ways uh, that are particularly unique and problematic. Tell us about that.
1: A lot of the discourse around the wealth gap is usually uh, centered mostly on race. So the kind of striking statistics everybody tends to hear is it's going to take 228 years to close the black to white wealth gap. No surprises, that number sounds very familiar of how long slavery lasted. But a lot of the research that exists is still from one dimension. So it's only race or only gender. And so people who look like you and me, Tanya, we are rendered invisible in a lot of the ways that we understand wealth inequality. If we look at the intra racial wealth gap, so for every dollar a Black man owns, a Black woman only owns 42 cents. For every dollar a Hispanic man owns, a Hispanic woman owns nothing. So what we're seeing is that across race and gender taken together, is that wealth inequality is more severe, it's more damaging and intractable for Black women and women of color than any other demographic in our country. And one of the reasons why is because Black women and women of color are structurally positioned to experience socioeconomic harm, financial trauma, financial abuse, not only on a more frequent basis, but also at a kind of worse magnitude.
0: Let me dig into that statistic for a second, because... What you just said is that for every dollar that an African, a single African-American man owns, Mm -hmm. an African-American woman owns 42 cents, that seems to run counter to the narrative that we're often told, which is that more uh, black women are doing better in higher education. Black women are doing better at upper uh, echelons of management management. What you just cited uh, suggests that there's more to this story about, you know, the superstar Black woman who is uh, prevailing everywhere than we're sometimes led to believe. Uh, why Why the disjointedness?
1: The short answer is misogyny. Uh, we love to exceptionalize Black women without actually capturing the multi-layered texture of their unique financial and socioeconomic experiences. Black women are statistically more likely to be evicted, even when we are statistically more likely to have more advanced degrees, for example. But really what that means is we, we tend to celebrate that fact without contextualizing with the idea that that means we are in more debt than any other demographic. Um, so because we are getting our degrees, we also happen to have more liabilities on our balance sheets. Um, and therefore we are experiencing basic needs and security at a much higher rate because we are dealing with a heavier burden of financial obligations, even though we are black women magic. Um, <laughs> those are some of the things that we don't contextualize when we tend to talk about black women's financial experiences.
0: You talk about these three prongs Um of financial literacy that often go unexplored with respect to women of color, financial trauma, financial abuse, and financial shaming. What do you mean by that? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. And to be honest, this actually helps us answer your last question as well. So Let's just think about the origin of the United States economic system, right? It was all of the wealth in this country came from two places. It came from stolen indigenous land and violence against black bodies through the institution of slavery. When we think about that from an intersectional lens not only does that mean that like our black bodies, male, female, whatever um, generated all of this wealth but when we look at it from the lens of a Black woman, that means all of the wealth was birthed by Black women at the same time. So there is this kind of inextricable link between wealth and trauma in the American context that we don't tend to think about. So there has been tons of studies, particularly in like the Jewish community, to talk about how trauma has been transmitted from the Holocaust, for example, generation to generation one thing that my research does that hasn't that nobody else has done before is look at the same kind of intergenerational and historical trauma of how slavery is this or slavery in our economic system even after slavery has been this huge apparatus for perpetrating economic violence against particular groups in our country to concentrate wealth and power in a select few that look a certain way, so that certain people can be systematically offered safety, belonging, and dignity, and certain people can be systematically denied it. And so what financial trauma is, is this cumulative effect of having to be, of having to experience or being required to experience this socioeconomic harm and being systematically denied safety, belonging, and dignity um, so that we can secure our basic needs and live the type of lives we want. And really my kind of definition of wealth is not just you know how much you own versus all of the money that you owe and which is captured in your net worth, but really, What is ultimately your vision for peace or happiness or contentment or what have you? And how do you fund that vision? And when you're kind of systematically denied the economic opportunity to secure that vision, the funds for that vision, um, that's likely done because some form of economic violence is, is actually something that you're required to experience. And so that's kind of why, again, I also look at What are the major influences of wealth um, in and of itself? You know, a lot of people tend to still drink the Kool-Aid that financial knowledge is actually the biggest influence on a person's wealth building capability. When, in fact, my research suggests it's actually financial trauma, really the unhealed financial trauma that you can know all there is to know about wealth and wealth building. But if you have not healed that financial trauma, then you actually are limiting the ability for you to amass more wealth um, generationally that you can then pass down to your family members. So how do you heal
0: it? Because let's unpack some of what you said. You know, I didn't have you here to waste time with a conversation about whether or not there was ever such a thing as institutional racism or structural racism. (laughs) Right. Like we're not going to if folks are unclear about that pick up some history books and do the reading that Chloe and I had to do to get through in life. But what I will say is that when you look at some of these institutional traumas, so you look at something like the GI Bill, for instance, which was a way uh, that many folks uh, were able to ascend to the middle class, it was not as helpful to many black folks ascending to the middle class because it was administered by states. It was administered by authorities that wanted to reaffirm Jim Crow. So There's a fact. Um, There are other facts. Uh, Redlining, for instance. Uh, Black folks were not allowed access to capital. All of these things are a part of American history and our history. Notwithstanding those things, and I don't want to be facile about them, but notwithstanding those things, we have seen at every point in American life black people find a a workaround. We don't hear about them, right? I mean, I'm in LA, Biddy Mason helped build this city. Uh, She Mm -hmm. was formerly enslaved and she became one of the biggest landowners in Los Angeles. Most people don't know about her because the story of how we have been able to work around has really not been told. So given the trauma, given the history, given, you know, facts that are really unassailable, what is your message? to young people who are like, wow, maybe the system is rigged. How do I get past this? What do you say to them?
1: There's two things. The first thing that, and this seems like, wow, that seems really oversimplified, Chloe, that that really can't make that much of a difference. I'll tell you, it's as simple as this. Right now, the system is structured to make us feel like the socioeconomic harm that we experience is our fault. This is the root of financial shame and financial shame persistent over time actually has an influence on your wealth building capability. So the first thing we can do to heal financial trauma is actually begin to realize that the vast majority, I can't give you a percentage, but I'd say it's probably over 90% of our adverse socioeconomic experiences are not our fault. And therefore we need to put that shame and accountability onto the systems who need to harbor that accountability. So there are kind of four major contexts that are um, the ripest places for financial trauma to either be transmitted or perpetrated. First, our education systems, which is where my work originally started, which was to say that through our kind of curricular frameworks and apparatuses, and not just the K-12 education system in the country, but also our higher education systems... We are delivering narratives that structure our relationships with money and wealth in a way that is creating that cumulative effect of financial trauma that needs to be changed. Our policymaking systems are huge. You just mentioned policies that have had this lasting effect and serious impact on material wealth generation in the Black community. So policymaking is a huge context that is a ripe context for financial trauma to be perpetrated. Our cultural institutions, I always kind of burst people's bubbles a little bit where it's like, you know, one of the, a lot of the songs that we tend to sing that are like major jams, not to say we can't jam to them anymore, but like, let's think of like no scrubs as an example. <laughs> I totally believe in the premise and like, am right there with you. At the same time, we are doing a lot of financial shaming because we're not contextualizing people's experiences. You're gonna bring up no scrubs. I was not <laughs> expecting that. That's not what I was not expecting you to go there. And but. so recognizing that people who are um leaders in our cultural institutions are actually continuing to um almost force messages onto us again, that is asking us to be accountable for the socioeconomic experiences that we can't control. Um, And then the final piece are family systems. I mean, we think about it, I can talk about my own family, I can talk about other families where it's like there are very predominant narratives that Black families tell their younger generations, don't do this and don't do that. And it's because of the economic and financial abuse that they may have experienced in their generation that they hope that future generations don't have to deal with. And so healing is really about naming and recognizing first. Then the next piece would be, how do we navigate in this system and kind of get around it? So one example, and then I'll kind of finish here is you're asking, like, what do you tell young people? So the first thing I say is the socioeconomic experiences that you have the vast majority of the time are not your fault. And you need to come with that mindset um, to a lot of your financial experiences, one. The second is a great, uh, the example I most often use is with bank accounts. Um, So first, we want to be able to name something and then navigate and intervene in the kind of harm that we might be experiencing. And bank accounts are like the most fundamental asset that we can build material wealth with. But it's also become, in an oxymoronic way, unaffordable for a lot of people to get bank accounts. And mainly because overdraft fees are generating close to 40% of all banks' revenue. I mean, it's mind-blowing. But what we don't understand and we're never taught is that overdraft is an opt-in. So by default, you're actually not supposed to have overdraft. But the way that people are opening accounts for us and the bank tellers are trained a certain way to ensure that you get it. We also don't know that it is legal for banks to reorder our transactions to increase the likelihood that you'll go into overdraft. This is called debit resequencing. So one of the ways that we can heal financial trauma is being able to talk to people and say, this is the type of structural socioeconomic harm that is embedded in this particular institution's business uh, operational plans or the makeup of the business. And here's how you can address it by just saying, I don't want overdraft. And so it's like, hey, how are you doing? My name's Chloe. I want to open a bank account. I don't want overdraft. Oh, great. You know, how's your day going? No, no, I don't want overdraft. And then there's no way that that debit resequencing can actually hurt you in the long run, which can affect your material wealth.
0: What you suggested was that people, there are largely factors outside of their control that yes. are responsible for their financial situation. Yes, yes. What role does personal choice and accountability play? I mean, you know what the some folks are going to be listening to this and saying, uh, you know, people make choices, people decide whether or not uh, they are going to save for college or save for a house or do something else. Uh, what do you say to those people? And what's the role of personal choice in all of this?
1: Yes, and that's fair. I understand there is a behavioral element to material wealth creation, 100%. The issue and how I respond to these people is be careful of how much you choose to put the blame and responsibility onto the individual, because this is actually how our economic system was designed. And our cultural institutions support this effort of financially shaming others to make it seem like that redlining was the fault of Black people. Like, I could easily say to all of those who have experienced the impact of redlining, well, you should have read the mortgage. And if you actually knew, you know, you saw the stipulations, you would see that this was a crap product, right? How many people could you say that to in 2007 and 2006 with their mortgages, right? So we're not even talking about redlining. I'm just talking about just like bad underwriting. Theoretically speaking, you could have seen that, or we could actually say, that the system was designed to be exploitative and violent against people from a socioeconomic perspective. So absolutely do I think that we have to work on the behavioral elements of, of knowing when to save and things like that. But this is why I talk about trauma in the first place, right? We are doing better, but like not totally there, but we know that trauma completely changes people's behavior. And that trauma gets embedded and then embodied in our financial behavior. And that is actually the behavioral or the individual's piece and why healing is so important. Because what trauma also does is it creates automatic trauma responses. So somebody might cognitively think to themselves, I need to save more instead of go out and spending this on something I quote unquote don't need. But they don't actually realize that some of the reasons why some people just spend Um, what other people would call frivolously, what I would just say is they might just spend unknowingly is because that's a trauma response. Because, you know, you think of fight or flight, there's really five trauma responses. Fight, flight, appease, dissociate. Now I'm blanking on the fifth, but the idea behind it is, are and freeze. Fight, flight, freeze, dissociate, appease. And all of these things actually can show up in our financial behavior. And so a lot of that is because of our, you know, unconsciousness of how an economic system, our political systems, our social and educational systems are actually having an impact on our understanding of our own financial behavior.
0: I like the way that you describe financial trauma. Uh, I have a quote from you. You said you came up with this term to explain why we have these contentious relationships with money. And here's the part that I love. Uh, As if we're navigating a system that wasn't really built for anybody except for cisgender white men. That is sort of how we often conceptualize wealth now right like i think today uh, the zeitgeist is that wealth is anti progressive i think it's important to debunk that but to your point in order to debunk that we need to dig into why the relationship is so complicated we feel ashamed when we don't when we are not doing well is your point we're embarrassed by it, mm-hmm. uh, it there's some embarrassment and shame behind that
1: Yes. And in many ways, again, it goes back to the inextricable link between trauma and wealth, that that's actually endemic in our economic system. That's how our economic system is meant to operate. And then the way that we talk about money is somehow now supposed to be devoid of people's feelings. And it's just a statistical game. It's just scientific or empirical and algorithmic, which is just not true, <laughs> uh, especially not in purposely ignored populations um, like the black community, like um, women. So one of the things that is important to think about with financial trauma and to your point is that we have to remember like why, how is this system built and has it really changed that significantly since the origin of its construction? Sure, slavery is outlawed. But to your point, do we still have institutional racism? And how does institutional racism intersect with our capitalistic model? Pretty easily.
0: You wouldn't deny that the system has changed in ways that allow more access and that those of us who've been able to penetrate it, we need to play a role in that. You yourself, you worked on Wall Street at J.P. Morgan. How did you like that?
1: I loved it and hated it at the same time. Um, So on my trading floor, which housed maybe like 300 different people, if you've seen hidden figures, I was the Taraji. (laughs) (laughs) So people were putting trash cans near me being like, are you going to take this out or doing secretarial work? And again, not to shame any secretaries, but that's not what I was doing. I was a trader. So you're going to treat me like it. And that's the work that I do. So what was interesting was I traded securitized products, which are mortgages, student loans, credit card receivables, auto loans. So right, the debt that average Americans touch, they're packaged and pooled, and the cash flow that when you pay your mortgage, that cash flow is sent to whoever owns the actual investment that we packaged. And so all of this was right after the financial crisis. And so all of the new kind of regulations were at play, uh, which is why they used me, because they're like, great, you are a legal theory major, go deal with Dodd-Frank and all of these other regulatory rules. But we still want to do what we were doing before, which is largely what happened. So I felt morally bankrupt very quickly. But it was a, to your point, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to start my nonprofit had I not worked on Wall Street and gotten a bonus that I used the startup capital. Whereas if you look at all of, you know, kind of a number of other Black women founders who are struggling with access to capital, I didn't have that struggle. So I I totally recognize how privilege has a play.
0: Did you have mentors when you were there? You know, I think that one thing that I often talk to uh, young women of color about, especially those who are working in environments where there aren't that many of them, um, is that don't expect the people who are going to give you great advice to look like you. There may not be anybody (laughs) and <laughs> there may not be anybody for a long way around in your role, in your position, uh, who looks like you. So you, you feel comfortable and learn how. Uh, to make your place at the table. Sometimes you won't be welcomed. You just got to go get your chair, pull it up, sit down, get a plate and sit down and be at the table. Uh, what was your experience there? I mean, did you find mentors? Were you able to, I assume obviously you did well, you were able to leave and start Black Femme, which I want to hear more about, but were you able to find your place at the table, find
1: your mentors, find some kind of community of support? I think so. And it's so funny you say that because it's spot on. I was going to say I had mentors. They didn't look anything like me. So there was this limitation of what I could lean on them for. I was in, you know, I call it the frat house, right? So there weren't a lot of women. um, So I couldn't bring in that like kind of intersectional experience when I was talking with my mentors, but I ultimately did have a lot of people who did support me. And I did learn a lot from. At the same time, I, there was this weird kind of double experience where I had certain people. And then the other side of it was, it's funny, um, I left actually, because I got sick. I was in and out of the hospital for nine months, and I was never granted medical leave. So rather than like accept my doctor's note because I had to go through five liver surgeries in the span of three months, I was sent a laptop and a VPN.
0: Do you consider yourself a
1: capitalist? Would you say you're a capitalist? That's a wonderful question. And to which I will answer, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, I think I know how to play the game very well. I'll say that. What I don't makes know. you unsure? Uh, I think just the tenets of capital- American capitalism I'm and studying financial trauma. It's making me feel like I am less and less so. However, at the same time, I do fundamentally believe, and this is where like all of the super, you know, radical and progressive people that I work with are like, like what the heck? I do feel as though there could be an equitable form of capitalism. And so for right now, this has always been the one tick that, you know, I feel like people put me in the middle Um, of the spectrum here, which is that fundamentally like our capitalistic system is going to continue to persist. So I don't feel like it is my role even while I'm doing this research to craft this utopian idea of a new economic system. Whereas how can we continue to, like you said, use the, the new opportunities that we have been given because we're standing on the shoulders of our you know, four family members who put in the work to get me where I am and where you are and so on and so forth, that I do think we can continue to scrape away. Uh, you know, Chloe McKenzie is the person would be like, yeah, I believe we should just blow it up and start over, but I'm also realistic. <laughs> so I know that capitalism will continue to reign. And so therefore I would rather focus on ways to make it better um, and reform it than to say, I'm an anti-capitalist and like my purpose on this planet is to completely rid it of capitalism. It's such a it's become such a
0: dirty word, but I mean, I'll just throw it out there. I I think that what we do here in America isn't necessarily, you know, capitalism. I mean, it's a sort of weird protectionism. Right. Like we are super about free markets when it comes to providing things for poor people. We're really protectionist when it comes to buying drugs cheaper in Canada. You know, mm. uh, we're so I, it's I, I don't know how to do it better. I mean, I, I think that there obviously obviously are elements. You know, ours is a sort of mixed system. But I, I think that capitalism gets a raw deal. But at the end of the day, I think I, I still raise my hand for it. So maybe I'm in. <laughs>
1: No, that's fair. I, like I mean, I all not to, I hope this isn't insulting. I mean, I do think it's a generational thing, right? So even Gen Z behind me, they're probably going to be much more or claim to be much more anti-capitalist than millennials are, um, or I should say progressive millennials or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. I think I stay in like the I don't know world of just kind of like yeah do I wish that there was a better alternative that wasn't so rooted in some of the white supremacist embedded legacy of of capitalism sure. Do I think we can try to push in that direction? Sure. Do I think that that means capitalism won't exist in the American context? No. And I mean, so, yeah. It capitalism
0: is how people are growing the beauty shops. I mean, that's right. the that's exactly. the mainstay of the American economy. And if you want to talk about the African-American economy, I mean, it's it's built on principles of capitalism just because, exactly. you know, we've been uh, kind of victimized by, you know, they're been generations of racism and horrible uh, institutional wrongs, um, I think as an economic theory, it is the right way to go. But I'm going to have to continue this conversation with you, especially with given what you said about it being generational. Are you trying to suggest that the folks my age, that the my age folks, that we're the last capitalist
1: standing? Is that is that how you're rolling, Chloe? Hey, that's going to be the name of your next book. I totally hand it over to the you, all the in the last world. The last capitalist standing.
0: <laughs> um, you are really uh, just, uh, th- this has been fascinating. Tell me about Black Femme. Tell me about the work it's doing and what you are doing uh, to make people more financially literate, because you've really put a real spin on that that I think a lot of folks have missed. Uh, tell us about sure. it. Sure.
1: So, Black Femme is a national nonprofit, and essentially, what we do is we mobilize all of those contexts that I mentioned, right? All of those um, kind of entities, cities, um, po- policymaking institutions, education systems, cultural institutions, and family systems, to be able to, you know, more adequately prevail over wealth inequality, specifically for Black women and girls, but also transform the entire ecosystems that create the conditions for Black women and girls' lives. Um, And so I started it in 2015. I really started in 2014, but let's say like, when did I get my EIN and all that other fun stuff? It was in 2015. And so I, I now work with cities. I work with higher education institutions and states who understand kind of my, what I call wealth justice framework and my wealth rise model, which is to take a particular city, that entire ecosystem, and figure out ways that not only can we reform those different um, pillars that I mentioned, but we can also then increase and maximize the wealth building capabilities of Black women and girls and then the whole community at large, right? So I usually get the first question. of like, is it only for Black women? No, it's not. But do I disaggregate the data to specifically honor the unique experiences that Black women have? Yes, I do. So we work with everybody because everybody is a part of an ecosystem that has an influence on a Black woman's wealth building capability. And so therefore we are working with everybody, but we are prioritizing strategically Black women's experiences and their struggles against wealth inequality. The yeah. other thing that I'll say, which might, you know, catches a lot of people by surprise. I financial literacy does not resonate with me, Um, it is a word that I have you know you talk about capitalism being a dirty word I personally think that financial literacy is just because again it's, it's kind of rooted in this idea that the major driver of wealth building capability is individual behavior and not structural systems. And so what I, I usually you know fall back on financial education, but more, uh, you if you see on my websites or anything that I've wrote, I talk about this idea of wealth justice, which is a larger commitment to maximizing wealth building capabilities of purpose, purposely ignored populations and being able to have this larger commitment to healing financial trauma. So, give us three quick
0: bites. If we want to help previously ignored communities, where do we start? Where does somebody like you, you and I, start? You also, I should point out, you grew up in a fairly uh, wealthy African American community, Prince George's County. Um, so, you know, you have another perspective on all this. So, what are three quick bullets? that we could give people to say, here's where you start and here's how you start thinking about your relationship to money differently?
1: Yes, early intervention. So all of the younger people in your life, everybody's like, what age? I usually say two or three. As you are starting to craft ways that your young ones, quote unquote, should be thinking about their relationships with money, I want you to be aware of some of the, internal emotions that you might be transmitting to young people. Um, This is why curriculum is so important and the narratives that we make available to people. So start young, but also recognize what are we actually giving to them. Uh, The second thing is to get involved in the political process, because as I mentioned, that part of the structural positioning of Black women and other purposely ignored populations is largely driven by policy, and so if you're really interested in closing the wealth gap, then we want to look at who we—not just on a national level, like the local level—is actually quite critical to material wealth generation. Uh, to your point, the beauty salons and the you know other kind of small businesses that are hubs in these communities and ecosystems are driven largely by local policy. So. That's everything from school boards to mayors, you know, city council members, et cetera. And the third thing that I'll say um, is rhetorically interrogate the messages that you have kind of internalized about money. And that's kind of the three places that I would start because, again... It does, I'll be honest, and this is the work of of healing and transformation, right, is destabilization. There is a moment of disorientation and complete uh, kind of instability or destabilizing your entire framework. But allow that process to happen and allow that process to happen in your body. So you might start to notice bodily information systems coming up for you that it's like, wow, I do actually get really anxious when I'm paying my bills. What is that about? Or, wow, I'm experiencing this financially and I'm sweating, or I'm really jovial, or, you know, what have you. Start to actually connect your bodily information systems with your cognitive information systems and your um, financial experiences, and it will start to kind of help you understand and identify what types of financial trauma you might actually be experiencing, which I will argue the vast majority of Americans um, have experienced.
0: I had no idea what you were talking about when you first started uh, talking about, you know, thinking about it through your body until you started to explain. And when you think about, you know, how we react to certain experiences, how, you know, people who, for instance, um, you know, folks who've talked about being compulsive spenders, for instance, you know, there's a certain satisfaction that I imagine that they get that, you know, overeaters get that drug addicts get that alcohol. So it's really, it's, it's so important to kind of think about how we're thinking about our relationship to money, what it does to us and what it makes us feel about ourselves. Look, we all start from somewhere. Nobody should have any shame, man. We are all out there, uh, Grinding and the folks who came before us uh, worked even harder. So, Chloe, Mackenzie, you are a dynamo, my friend. Um, really a lot to think about uh, as you continue to consider capitalism. I hope you'll come back on this <laughs> capitalist show.
1: <laughs> well, my book is literally all about capitalism uh, and free markets.
0: <laughs> indeed. So- And before we go, let's do a plug for your book, because I learned you actually took your book off of Amazon to make it more widely accessible. Uh, Tell us about your book. Tell us where we can find it. And uh, then I'm going to let you go. I really could keep you here for, (laughs) I could keep you here all afternoon, (laughs) but tell us about your book and tell us where we can find it.
1: My book is called The Activist Investor. It's a way for you to be able to learn how to get into the investing market but doing so with an activist perspective um, and using a lot of really interesting loopholes as to the rights that shareholders are afforded when you become a shareholder um, of a company. I did make it free upon the murder of Breonna Taylor. So you can get it at my website, chloebmckenzie.com. And all you have to do is uh, agree to cite black women when you are you know, reading my book and the other black women I cite in it, it's completely free. Um, and it will
0: remain that way in perpetuity. Chloe B. McKenzie, you, my friend, are very special. And thank you for this conversation. Thanks for giving me stuff to think about. And um, thanks for being in the world. Uh, you're really doing wonderful things. Thanks thank for you so being much here. for
1: having me.
0: The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer, Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.